Welcome to China Econ Talk. I'm your host, Jordan Schneider. In the year 2000, President Bill Clinton promised that Chinese attempts at centering the internet would be just as successful as nailing jello to a wall. But today, China's censorship's efforts are reaching out so far that even on Twitter, a service blocked in China, Chinese nationals are pressured to keep quiet. Just last week, China's control of the internet is reaching out so far that, for instance, at AirMovingDevice, an anonymous account with just a few thousand followers filled with interesting data visualizations of party politics, tweeted out that, quote, I will be deleting all my tweets and no longer be tweeting or responding to DMs. All of my tweets were entirely based on personal analysis using publicly available data and did not involve any other individuals. It is not my intention to subvert state or party authority. So... How did it come to this? To discuss, we're joined today by James Griffiths, author of the recently published The Great Firewall of China, How to Build and Control an Alternative Version of the Internet. James, thanks for coming on China Econ Talk. Hi, Jordan. Thanks for having me. So what brought you to write this book? What I say when people ask me that question is that I, I lived in China during what I call kind of the heyday of, of Weibo and, and Chinese social media when there was this real excitement around what the Chinese internet was evolving into and this feeling that it was potentially evolving into something more free and more transparent and also something that could hold the government to account in a way that hadn't been done before. You know, in the kind of early days of Weibo as this kind of mass social media platform, you know, you saw things like uh, officials called out for having a watch that was worth several times their salary, or the big one was the um, the high speed rail crash, which then a lot of people kind of did some citizen reporting into and posted on Weibo, and that that you know that had real effect. And you know, the biggest I think real success and the real tangible one that still goes on today is that you know, a lot of the conversation about air pollution in China today was, was started on Weibo and was driven by kind of pressure on Weibo. And and so there was this real excitement about what the internet was evolving into. And then and then I witnessed that. And then I also witnessed the kind of unfortunate reality of what it did evolve into, which was something even more controlled and even more cut off from the outside world. And, and you know, we saw kind of the death of Weibo as a free speech platform. You know, excitement about WeChat didn't really turn into anything in terms of free speech. And as, as the book kind of recounts, Things have basically been, apart from a few kind of vague spikes where it looks like things are getting better for a while, you know, the, the trend is actual to, actually towards more control and you know, less ability to talk about things online. So um, before we come back to the present day, one of the really interesting things your book does is give a real arc in terms of just the kind of overall history of what what the Internet meant to free speech in China. So let's go back to the very beginning. How did the Internet come to China and what did it look like in those very early years? Yeah, I mean, it was it was pretty rudimentary. Um, you know, the, these are these are the, it's difficult to remember nowadays what it was like to use. I mean, even actually pretty modern dial-up or, or you know non non broadband connections, and this was even even more rudimentary than that. But so, so 1987 is is when the first email was sent from China, which is kind of a good, a good you know marker for when the you know, the internet. But I mean, it didn't. You want to tell the story broad- of what the uh, what the email said. So, so yeah, I mean, the, the first email was sent by a group of Chinese scientists working with some European colleagues to connect China to the, you know, the burgeoning global internet. And and so in 1987, September 1987, they sent their first email, which, which said, across the Great Wall, we can reach every corner in the world. This is the first electronic mail, because you have to spell it out those days, you couldn't say email, supposed to be sent from China into the international scientific networks via computer interconnection. And so from that start, 
you know, it was a rough start. The actual email didn't send at first. It took a couple of days for it to actually go through and be delivered. Oh no! Um, that, that was that was China's first connection to the world. It went went to another university in Europe. Um, but you know, even after that, they didn't really take off for a few years. Uh, you know, the, it, by 1994, there are statistics that show there was still only a few thousand people with access to the internet, and you know, but it didn't become commercially available until kind of the end of that decade. Um, but once it did take off, um, it really, really, really took off. I mean, I mean, you know, which is which is a pattern which is common in most countries. But there's, you know, there was this thing called the, the year of the internet in 1997, where there was this, you know, big craze for it. And it was on, you know, there were kind of adverts for internet services and ISPs on, on buses and, and you know billboards in Beijing, and and that's kind of when we really saw this flowering of it. Unfortunately, yeah. Yeah, and, and by 1998, you know, the country was was over it. I think. Pretty much, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> and and unfortunately, I mean, the year before the year of the internet, um, the government passed the first uh, regulations to control the internet, and and you know they they took a while to get to kind of get to grips with this technology as well. But once they realized the potential for it, they they pretty quickly passed legislation to to control it, and and you know it's kind of only been escalating since then. Sure, I mean it's interesting because ninety eight is pretty. You know, I'll give the Chinese government credit for uh, for kind of understanding that this was a flashpoint. I think a lot of other countries around the world didn't quite see the the potential power of the internet at at that earliest stage. So, what was it you think about the the, the Chinese government's thinking about free speech in general, about the internet in particular, that that had their ears, I don't know, maybe perked earlier than than other countries might have been. Mm. You know, one of the arguments I make in the book is that the kind of important thing about the internet is not so much its ability to spread content to, to, to enable people to learn specific kind of facts. It, it, the important thing from a free speech perspective, and especially from a kind of repressive government perspective, is is it's how the internet enables and spreads solidarity. It, you know, it allows me to connect with a person of a similar political mind, and, and we can organize online. And you know, I think when you're talking about a government which comes from uh, you know, a mass movement like you know, like the Communist Party does, that there is a kind of implicit understanding of that more so than maybe other governments might have had at the time. You know, this is a government which came to power by a communist revolution, which you know required you know massive solidarity and massive kind of spreading of of mm. you know of propaganda and of thinking and you know uniting people across the whole country. And, and I think maybe they understood better than others did. Well, if people can use the internet to do that, that can potentially be a threat to us. You know, and, and also, you know, it, it is definitely important that it, you know, it comes within, you know, less than a decade um, since Tiananmen had happened, and there was this mass movement. And you even have—I have a quote in the book from one of the Tiananmen protesters who kind of said, "Look, if we'd had email at the time of, of Tiananmen, we could have spread the news about what was happening much quicker, and that might have, you know, might have caused a kind of counter uprising in, in in cities outside of Beijing if people had heard what happened." And you know. And I think just as they understood that, the government understood that and, and they thought, well, we need to control this as soon as possible. So that's an interesting take because in some parts of your book, you have people quoted talking to the contrary, basically talking about, you know, in Iran, for instance, how Twitter and Facebook's role were actually overplayed and people had other means of getting in touch with folks. And there's an interesting way to think about this, where if you have everyone so dependent on the Internet, then by being able to kind of like control and and meld and you know potentially pull the plug uh, you end up having more power to shape a society than you would otherwise yeah and I, and I think that's definitely true you know that there are a couple of studies out there that show that people's engagement in activism online can actually sap their willingness to take part in something on the streets because they feel like they're they're taking part even if actually what they're doing is not really affecting things that much that's where I would maybe kind of draw a distinction between you know 
kind of posting online in support of something which is more like creating content and organizing online the important thing is is the ability to organize things which then go to the street and which then affect affect direct action rather than just complaining about the government or posting calls for things to happen and then not following up on them yeah you know the iran example is a really interesting one because it was kind of like a reverse Potemkin internet protest in that a lot of media in the West and a lot of politicians in the West saw this thing that had been invented by the West in the West in a way that it was people talking about these protests on social media. And a lot of people in the Iranian diaspora or just supporters of this kind of action in the West talking about it on Twitter, which made it hugely popular on Twitter. And some of those people were sharing information from within Iran that was sent to them in another way. But the penetration in Iran on Twitter was like minuscule. And, you know, there were hardly any users on it. Hmm. And, you know, they were organizing, they were talking about these protests in a completely different way. And, and the idea that they were driven by Twitter was then kind of first propagated and then kind of exaggerated by people in the West. Yeah, it's an interesting hypothetical whether it's easier to kind of manage and control folks who are organizing online or offline. Yeah, and and you know, but I think it's also important to realize that because of the way that we operate today doing anything else, uh, you know, I don't think many political parties or or, or you know, activists are, are particularly capable at you know, organizing without the internet, you yeah. know, and that's not suggest that they're, that they're missing in skills or anything, but they're it just is such a factor in how we use our lives. So going back to the 90s and early 2000s, there are a number of uh, Westerners who you profiled that had a outsized impact on the state of the Chinese internet and the creation of the Chinese internet. So you want to talk about a few of these folks who uh, helped connect Dharamsala to the world or helped set up Chinese IT backbone? Yeah, so kind of one of the really interesting things I found in the reporting of the book is that there's this kind of simultaneous connection of China, of greater China, to the internet. And then also at the same time, there was these um, activists, um, Tibetan and, and, and US technologists who were working in Dharamsala, which is where the exiled Tibetan community and the Dalai Lama live. And they were working to connect Dharamsala to the internet. And, and Dharamsala, you know, as a, as a place in very, very rural India, it was actually connected to the internet incredibly early, you know, while a lot of the country still didn't have internet access. And so, you know, uh, the, the guy I talk about with Dharamsala is this, this US technologist called Dan Haig, and he you know, was part of this team that they went out there and he had a kind of connection to Tibet through as a both of the kind of student and, and he visited there as a, as a you know, as a tourist kind of backpacker. And then he realized there was this desire for connections and there was this very basic line that was set up through, you know, through an Indian um, Indian service and, and that they had this and they needed to upgrade it. And they flew into to Delhi with spools of, of cable and modems and stuff. And then they'd like trekked out to, to Dharamsala, which is, it's still fairly out of the way even today. You know, it's, it's a couple of flights and then there's a bus. This is in the nineties, it's even more difficult. And, and so they get there and, and you know, he, he told me this great story about that. Actually, one of the most horrific things they found was, was you know, that the Tibetans were, were fully on board with this. And then the thing that really freaked them out was the kind of Indian health and safety standards at the time. He told the story of they were in the bank and they went, uh, they saw this kind of cable, like, you know, naked power cable leading out of a out of a bank machine and then and then going straight up out of the window and straight into the pylon with no kind of earthing cable or protections on it at all. And, <laughs> you know, this is just freaking these guys out so much. They spend their lives building, you know, safe, safe systems. Um, they got Darren Sauer connected to the internet very, very early for the type of community it was. And that had a real effect. I mean, you know, I was talking about solidarity and that, you know, had a real effect in in kind of building a... Uh, or, or not so much in building the, the Tibetan diaspora up in terms of an activism sense, but in connecting 
what existed in the West, which was this quite active Tibetan diaspora movement, you know, in terms of activism and, and campaign on behalf of Tibet. But what was bizarre is they were somewhat disconnected from the actual Tibetan leadership and the, the government in exile and the Dalai Lama mm. because they were all in this in rural Tibet and you know, it was hugely expensive to call them. It was difficult to send faxes. And so by connecting Dharamsala up to the internet, that really, you know, brought the entire kind of global community together. And so at the same time as this is happening across the Himalayas, you have the kind of burgeoning internet in China, which ironically was also built largely by American technologists and, and engineers. I mean, Chinese engineers had a huge role in it, but at that time in history, the, the you know the leading experts in building domestic internets were were Americans, you know, and and so there was a couple of guys who was working there. Um, Sprint had a big contract at the time, and and one of the people I profile is is this man called Michael Robinson, who was just happened to be in living in China at the time he was he was teaching as as kind of many many Americans have come through China as teachers and and he he saw that there were internet accounts being offered that you could go down to the government office and sign up for them and and he went and he signed his school up for it and he kind of poked around and he was like oh god this is set up so terribly and he just sent off an email to the to the person at the end, other end of this ISP and said you know you've you've misconfigured you know x system you know please change the setting to this you know, just thinking just to get his own internet uh, system to work better. And, and in the end, he got offered a job because they're like, oh my God, we've got a, you know, capable, trained technology uh, internet expert in, in China. Let's, he, let's give him a job. Did he speak Chinese back then? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I, I don't honestly know. I don't, I don't remember asking. I don't think I ever asked him if he spoke Chinese when he first got that job because okay. he was working as an English teacher. So, so, so that's not necessary. He won't necessarily have to have spoken Chinese. Yeah. I remember, well, regardless, he probably, his like IT Chinese was probably not super top notch though. Then again, <laughs> yeah, no. then again, it's not, it, it's, it, these are the sorts of things where actually like, you know, technical experts can really have an impact through uh, even, even around uh, technology barrier, even around language barriers, I imagine. Mm. Yeah, and, and and you know he he was instrumental in in working with with Sprint at the time to set up these backbones that that powered the internet across the country, and then you know setting a pattern that basically has continued to this day. Uh, really, is is that Sprint kind of was successful and you know was popular with the Chinese Chinese government and they provided these great service and then quickly they got undercut by a Chinese company and were replaced and the government was much more happy to have a Chinese company do this job. Instead. Of Sprint. So one of the interesting things in your book is this exploration of how dissident strategies evolved over time. So I, I learned in particular and thought was interesting the story of a Li Hong Quan and a Dak Chang Kao. So what was going on with him and his internet spam subversive mailing list? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's, it seems crazy nowadays that you could have a subversive mailing list, let alone in China. So um, Li Hongquan was a, a kind of activist. He was involved in the, the Tiananmen movement, and, and he was kind of one of many, you know, young kind of young idealistic Chinese people who kind of moved overseas following Tiananmen in the nineties. And uh, he kind of found himself in in New York, and he got involved with the the exiled movement there. Started kind of thinking of a way to get information back into China and, and to spread, you know, news that was being censored, and then also kind of political criticism of the government. He worked with a couple of other groups, and eventually he launched his own, you know, magazine. I guess, I guess they they would they would always call it, um, so Dakankao, which was, or, or in English it was always called VIP Reference. You know, big references that is the literal uh, translation. VIP Reference is isn't it snappy, mm. um, but the the thing they struck on was that 
even though a lot of websites were being censored and, and the Great Firewall really was kind of building up at this time, the technology being used to do it wasn't as sophisticated as, as what we have today, that there were IP addresses and, and domain names were blocked, but there wasn't the kind of deep packet inspection and there wasn't the kind of AI technology in there to, you know, really detect content. So they start they started collecting email addresses. You know, they'd go on university websites and 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 you know, he was telling me that a lot of universities at the time you could just go on their server and and, and you could very easily find a database that had every single email address that was that was on that server. <laughs> and and so they would gather, you know, thousands and thousands of emails. And and then they would just send this, you know, newsletter full of full of banned banned news and criticism of the government. They just send it to thousands of people in China. And that was both a strategy in terms of spreading it and getting it as far as possible, but it also gave people plausible deniability that that because it was being spammed into everyone's things and that they, they tell people don't forward this, you know, don't kind of do anything that makes it look like you endorse it. It's just spam. So you read it and and then you don't do anything with it. The kind of idea of this, of all of a sudden, you know, you're some grad student looking up physics papers um, online and then this shows up in your inbox is it must have just been a real um, uh, surprise shock. I don't I mean, I don't know what I would uh, what I would make of it if, if I was in that mindset at the time. So could you talk a little bit about the, the impact it, it had or didn't have? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think I think nowadays we, we're kind of, we're kind of so cynical that we, you know, we we wouldn't really uh, wouldn't really be impressed by it, and yeah. we probably dis- dismiss it even if it was saying something true. Yeah, but, I mean, Kyrie you know, Irving, is... I'm sure he got convinced that the Earth is flat from this sort of email address. But <laughs> shout out to NBA yeah. jokes here on China Econ Talk. Anyways, excuse me, James. Please. So yeah, I mean, the impact of Dakanka was 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 very big. You know, th- this wasn't the only service like this, but it was one of the biggest. And and you can still find, you know, there there are archives of it online. And, and you know, they you know it was very very regular, and it was very comprehensive in terms of the type of news that it was sending out about the democracy movement, how it was organizing overseas. You know, you know stories about kind of victims of Tiananmen and, and you know other other things that were happening in China at the time. And, and so I spoke to Michael Anti, who who is more famous today as as a dissident writer himself, and you know has lots of experience with censorship and and you know he was kind of as a much younger man did just receive this 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 random email in his in his in his inbox he he lived in nanjing at the time and he was interested politically kind of conscious but there was a very limited degree to which you could be politically conscious you know as a young person living in nanjing you know not even in the capital and and you know and he and he described it as you know really really eye opening and, and you know and that you used to kind of be really excited when you would see a new a new copy of dakankao in, in your you know, in your inbox. And, and, you know, I think it's very, very difficult for us to appreciate today how revelatory that could be, you know, we're living in a society where, where not only do you not really know dissident thought or, or criticism of the government, but you don't have that great of an idea of just what the government is doing. You know, the Chinese propaganda system is much, much more sophisticated now and much more kind of, I wouldn't sort really use the word transparent. transparent. But more like there's, yeah. there's, it's easier to get knowledge. You know, it wasn't, yeah. it's just the internet. You know, you can, if you want to look up yeah. stuff, you can. I mean, right now we have like the propaganda app where you have to log in every day and like see what the Chinese government is doing. So I think it's just, you, it's a different media era, right? And, you know, you had radio, mm. you had TV, you had books if you really wanted to read it's this very sci-fi this very black mirror type story of this uh of this kind of like um subversive email just, sh- just sneaking into your inbox una- unawares yeah and, and i mean you know there's also i found a, a great uh, article from the time as well that 
they quoted this this um, policeman in Shanghai who 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 got it and was incredibly upset by it and you know described it as I think he described it as spiritual pollution and and you know was really really offended to get this you know subversive email in his in his inbox sure. so you know not not everyone was happy but but that you know they did all kind of recognize it and and unfortunately I mean unfortunately for for Li Hongquan and 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 the system they they you know the censors kind of recognized what it was as well and and you know started kind of trying to block it you know I remember even not that long ago, I mean probably probably even a even a decade ago that that spam was still you know relatively a real problem and and now it you know it isn't you know it just goes into a different folder and you largely don't see it unless you have a kind of really crappy um work server that doesn't do it properly um and 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 so you know with the same technology they 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 started to you know filter this stuff out and and unfortunately when you're trying to talk about banned topics that you know does give the authorities pretty obvious keywords as to what they're trying to block um, and, and, you know, they tried various ways of getting around this, you know, there, there was, you know, they, they would like break up all of the, break up all of the text so that, so there was only one word on each line and one character on each line. So, so that, you know, there weren't characters together. And then that, that kind of broke up a lot of the, maybe the banned words and try and do it that way. And there, there was a while when they would be sent out as images. Um, but obviously that this is much early internet. So that, that has its own issues with, in terms of, you know, bandwidth and delivering into people's inboxes and, as you kind of get towards the start of the 2000s, this is becoming much, much less of a, of a you know, an effective tactic. Uh, you, you do say, which I thought was a, a line I really liked in your book, is that ironically, Chinese is a language perfectly suited to getting around keyword filters, whereas English would soon descend into nonsense by trying to replace words with homonyms. There are thousands of potential Chinese characters to choose from that obscure meaning but preserve the sounds of a word. So, you know, this cat and mouse game, I think, is 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 much more kind of creative and interesting to watch in Mandarin than it would be in English. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine, you know, it would just, uh, you know, it would be leet speak, I guess, you know, replacing letters with numbers if we tried to do it in English. But, but you, you, you can only go of, so far. Yeah, that's the thing. Yeah. You'd run out so quickly. Yeah. Well, I, I, won't, I won't repeat the most famous uh, homonym, uh, most famous substitution uh, on your podcast. But, but you know, there are lots and lots of substitutions that you can make that, that people can still kind of get the gist of. So, so we're in the late 90s, early 2000s, and uh, Tom Friedman, the much reviled New York Times op-ed writer and, you know, big think person, uh, arguably does the greatest thing of his lifetime uh, in confronting Jiang Zemin about the New York Times. So he, uh, he asked this question to Jiang Zemin uh, saying, like, you know, what's your deal with blocking the New York Times? And uh, Jiang Zemin responds, you raised a very specific issue with the New York Times website in particular, and I cannot answer that question. But if you ask my view of the New York Times, my answer is that it is a very good paper. So what happens after this? I mean, the New York Times got unblocked. Unbelievable! Uh, you know, it, 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 it's <laughs> unbelievable. I mean, everything everything about the story is unbelievable. Uh, you know, not only can you imagine the New York Times being allowed to sit down with the with the Chinese president in this day and age, and, and you know, be able to ask combative questions. That's unbelievable to begin with, and then him kind of taking them into consideration, and then deciding actually, yeah, we should unblock this paper. I mean, it's crazy, and it just, you know, it does kind of show. You know, it just shows how far we've come since the Jiang Zemin era. It was totally shocking. And it was clear. It was clear. I mean, this would not have happened 
in its own right had this moment not transpired i'm sure no yeah i mean and and you, you know I, i'm sure some of it was also to show that you know they were i'm sure they were pretty keen for people to actually be able to see the jiang zemin interview and and see you know how important we are on the global stage but you know yeah it was it was really remarkable and so how long did this last i mean china the new york times has a had and still has a fantastic chinese language uh website where a ton of articles are are translated every day into wonderful chinese which is a great uh, learning material if you want english chinese um mm. uh, side by side but when did the game end for uh, uh for them on the mainland yeah, so it was it was a New York Times Pulitzer winner, Tom Friedman, who got them unblocked. And then it was a New York Times Pulitzer winner, Dave Barboza, who got them blocked again in 2012 when he wrote about the uh, hidden fortune that the family of Wen Jiabao had and that other officials had this, you know, secret family money that, that you know, there isn't necessarily a good explanation for. Not, not a bad run, I must say, um, when it comes to the lifespan of these sorts of things. Yeah, and it often can seem really, really bizarre from the outside what gets you blocked um, because, you know, the, there is a sophistication to, to the firewall, you know, it, things can be blocked at, at a, at an individual URL level. So you can, you know, you can block a specific story and, and it's very difficult to, to kind of see into the black box and, and decide, you see what, you know, what gets the website blocked, what gets the publication blocked rather than what gets a specific story blocked. And, you know, sometimes the blocks last for a week around a sensitive event and sometimes they, they last forever. Yeah, well, we'll see what this episode does to China Econ Talk, but fingers crossed. <laughs> so I just spent two years at a master's program in China and China studies, and doing it, I watched a lot of ITE, but didn't necessarily gain too many hard skills. Had I only known that at the University of San Francisco's new master in applied economics, I could have learned something to actually make me super employable. You know, R, SQL, machine learning, all that good stuff you actually see on job listings in Silicon Valley and Zhongguansun, not necessarily have you watched all of Song. So in this program, you can study the economics of platforms, auctions, and business strategy at the same time as you learn the tools of econometrics, experimental design, and machine learning. Plus, for all those non-U.S. students out there, this program is designated STEM, so you can apply for a three-year extension on your student visa and keep working in the U.S. after you graduate. To learn more and get an application fee waiver, go to usfca.edu slash Jordan. So you, you do a very good job of covering the Google arc in China in this book. But I thought what was most interesting to me, um, did the kind of moral calculus, uh, you know, over the different points of the life cycle in uh, Google and China. And we've done we've done a few shows on this in the past. But uh, some of the interesting reporting that you had was Eric Schmidt talking about how, quote, we did an evil scale and decided not to serve at all was worse evil. And Larry Page saying that nobody actually believes us, but we very strongly made these decisions on what we thought were the best interests of humanity and the Chinese people. So Google has gotten, you know, has has received a lot of criticism over the past, you know, 15, 20 years for their engagement and, you know, desire to, to, to work and really succeed in the Chinese market uh, with Congress people in 2006, comparing what they're doing to IBM working in Nazi Germany. Um, but I'm curious, you know, to what extent do you think this criticism is fair, justified, and, and you know, wh- how much kind of moral responsibility you put on these American, uh, com- American tech companies when working in the Chinese market? Yeah, I mean, well, the first thing I would say is that, you know, it's very convenient that the thing that happens to be the most ethical is also the thing that benefits Google's bottom line. But, you know, it, it, it's an interesting topic. 
I, I think, you know, the, with the recent uh, reporting about Google, I mean, the fantastic reporting that The Intercept and Ryan Gallagher did about Dragonfly and, you know, the, the, the kind of pressure on that that, that seems to have, uh, you know, killed, maybe killed that project. You know, you did see a lot of people talking about, oh, what, why are you doing this? Aren't, aren't Chinese people better off to have, have Google to even have a censored search engine? And, you know, why are we depriving Chinese people of this, you know, this this tool that, that everyone, most other people in the world use every day? And, and you know, there's a reason for that. And, and you know, some of that is, is due to the, the failures of Chinese search engines and Chinese domestic competitors that people are just desperate for any any other search engine. I think there is a degree to which that criticism has merit. If, if the argument was... You know, should Chinese people be, be, have a better search engine? Um, I think I think everyone agrees that that they should. The kind of difficulty is is that when companies make these compromises in China, it doesn't just affect China. Google admitted when they pulled out of the country the first time around, their presence in China was being used against them by other countries uh, as a reason to to say, you know, do these kind of things for us. You know, Russia is is the kind of the next obvious example because it's it's you know such a big market that that they are able to kind of wield that influence as well. But you know, even smaller countries were, you know, starting to say and, and I'm sure would if, if Dragonfly had gone ahead, they, they would have said, you know, you build a Chinese app, you can build a you can build a Russian app, you can build a Ugandan app. The compromises that are made to, to, to work in China don't remain in China, and that, that's kind of the biggest no. problem. My my worry, concern, resignation is that the cat is sort of out of the bag um, with 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 this one, and it's it's hard to. I mean, I don't know. I feel like governments understand that this is something they can do, and you know, they have enough leverage now to. Um, or, or enough technical sophistication to shut off uh, companies' access to uh, to their market. So it's 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 kind of tricky trying to think of what you know what cards these these companies or the U.S. government um, or just you know Western governments that value free speech higher really have to play when it comes to persuading uh, and pushing these countries to have more um, open, freer. Uh, technology ecosystems. Yeah. And there's, you know, there's definitely been a trend, you know, the, the kind of one of the big arguments in the book is, is that the great firewall just, you know, simply by existing kind of has an effect on global internet policy because it just shows that there is this other way of doing it. And the the kind of compromises that Google made in, in the 2000s and, and, you know, other internet companies have made sense that you know, Apple, Apple is a big example in terms of kind of localizing servers in China, you know, that has an effect on policy in other countries. And you know, I won't deny that I, I, I don't have a I don't have a great answer for, for what what can be done about it. But you know, I, I feel quite strongly that you you don't improve the situation in one country by potentially making it worse in a bunch of other countries. And it's kind of like you know, we need to build a better internet everywhere, not kind of bring you know. And the risk is that by doing by you know making these compromises, you actually bring you know the kind of global internet freedom level kind of you bring it downwards towards the Chinese model. Yeah. What's what also is I, f- I find interesting is is one of the uh, side effects of this content censorship and um, you know these these aggressive takes that the Chinese government has taken against the um, against the you know Facebooks and Twitters and YouTubes of the world is this massive flowering of an entire giant really powerful impressive Chinese technology ecosystem which you could argue you know I think I think some uh, some of these companies would have existed on their own but there are others that may have just been wiped away and and you know. Instagram and Twitter would be 
20, 30, 40% bigger. This is something that's also happened in Russia where you see these apps, uh, where you see a lot of native apps that have uh, been able to grow up because of the sort of restrictions around a lot of the Western content. So I think I think just from a kind of domestic growth business perspective, there's always, there's always flip sides when it comes to protectionism. On the one hand, you may not be getting world-class stuff to begin with, but you're also giving you know, your domestic entrepreneurs more room to breathe to kind of find their own footing and, and develop and develop domestic industries. So I think that is also a potentially a big demonstrative effect around the world is drawing lines around this um, these industries from a content perspective will end up creating a lot more local companies and and high tech stuff which countries around the world want to see in their in their economies. There's a big difference between be- censoring content yeah. and <laughs> being, and being anti-monopoly. You know, yeah. you know, I, I think there are. You know, there obviously there are a lot of problems with with the current model of, of kind of surveillance capitalism and, and the, the model that the tech giants have, have kind of thrived in. You know, and and you know it would be interesting to, to to kind of see. And you know, there are some moves towards this in Europe, perhaps that towards kind of trying to force these companies to reinvent themselves and, and to kind of allow more competition. You know, there are a few people in China who are happy that Baidu hasn't had to compete with anyone for a long time. Fair. One uh, one one great moment in your book was after Google gets shuts down, some executive buys everyone tickets to Avatar and tells them to take the afternoon off. So whenever you run into problems, seeing uh, James Cameron blockbusters is probably the right way to blow off some steam, I imagine. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I would describe it as salt in the wound, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. What would you rather have them seen? Uh... What, what, what's the appropriate movie to see in that in that context? What would you what, what, what would you have put on the um, uh, what what would you have put on the screen there? No, I guess I guess I would have to look at exactly what was showing. Well, you know, it, I mean, it's China, so there was probably like three three Hollywood movies showing at the time. No, no, no. So, you can yeah. pick you can pick any movie from history. What's the what's the what's the apropos <laughs> one there? What is the apropos one? God, I don't know. I feel like um, Office Space probably. Office Space. There we go. There we go. The office space of uh, retro viewing in 2010 uh, for, for <laughs> Kai Fuli and friends to, um, uh, to to all watch together. So towards the end of the book, you talk about how the Chinese model of internet regulation is being exported abroad. So give us a little story about how this has uh, played out in Russia in particular. Yeah, I mean, Russia has always been an interesting case on the internet. You know, it, it in the 90s and in the early 2000s, it, it was remarkably free, even as there were restrictions, you know, in Russia on kind of TV networks and, and, and newspapers faced a lot of pressure. There was this kind of, and it's difficult to tell if it was tolerance or if it was ignorance about how the internet was working and, you know, what people were doing online. But there was quite a lot of dissident discussion on, on the internet and, and you know, criticism of the government and, and, you know, even kind of organizing political parties and, and kind of talking about corruption and things like that. And just within the past couple of years, that has completely transformed. It has been a gradual process, but but the last couple of years have seen a real escalation. And, you know, even this week, the Russian Duma passed, uh, did the second reading of a couple of new bills that are that one of which is, is kind of an anti-fake news law, which imposes fines and potential prison time on people who share fake news content, which is, you know, as you would expect, an incredibly broadly defined term. And then also uh, uh, another piece of law which passed this week was um, about insulting the government or, or government officials, including President Putin. And and so, you know, Russia is very, very far along in the process of turning into another Chinese internet, basically. So, so to, 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 to kind of explain how, how Russia's transformed, uh, you know, the, the way the internet works is, is from a real kind of technical perspective, you have certain access points where, where the global internet becomes, you know, whichever country's internet. 
and and in a lot of countries that there, there are many many access points and and they they may be privately controlled or somewhat government controlled or you know mix of both and in china obviously they're government controlled and they're very tightly controlled and and russia has moved to to take much greater control of how the internet comes into its into the country and then also to enable it to in times of conflict it says to to be able to cut them off to essentially you know just cut runet off from the rest of the global internet and it will become this kind of intranet for a, a certain period you know that basically is is how the great firewall works and and you know that's that has been done with the assistance of Chinese officials. You know, Chinese officials have been going to Russia for a number of years now in order to consult on this. There are lots of Russian lawmakers kind of on the more conservative side who openly talk about the need to follow the Chinese model. And, and they give examples of kind of obscene content being spread, being spread online or, you know, terrorist content. And they, they will, and then they will say, look, we need to learn from China on this and block it entirely. The the lesson is basically a positive one. I mean, the when when trying to come up with with negative things for the party on the internet regulation, you don't really have. It. Let's rephrase. You know, if I'm if I'm sitting in the Kremlin, this sounds like a great model to me. Uh, there's a there's really a um, it, it really does sound like a, a a shining model if your if your incentives are um you know if you're on the autocratic side and you aren't necessarily comfortable with people speaking out um i think the chinese regulation uh and the chinese internet over the past 20 years has basically been this story of being able to sort of cradle um both uh innovation and and uh, business growth while at the same time keeping um free speech to a lid. And I guess the the argument that uh, Bill Clinton would have made 20 years ago is that that's basically impossible and you can't really have one without the other. But um, you know, history has shown over the past 20 years that that's not necessarily the case. Yeah. And I, and I think it's an, you know, it's an attractive model. You know, it's definitely attractive in autocracies and, it, you know, but it's attractive model well beyond that. You, uh, you know, there, there are plenty of politicians um, in in dem perfectly democratic countries who occasionally, you know, reference the Great Firewall and reference China as we're an just regulating for, fake know, news. It's just fake sorry? news. We're shut. It's just fake news. We're shutting down. Of course. Yeah, it's fake news. Who or, or it's, shut down you know, fake news? Yeah, or it's terrorists. It's terrorists organizing on this encrypted messaging platform, which we obviously then need to access in order to stop this. And yeah. you know, unfortunately, part of you know living in a democracy and you know promoting free speech is that you kind of have to you know, tolerate a, a, a great deal of stuff that you don't like and, and China doesn't. And there's a lot of people who are jealous about that. Um, so aside from reading The Great Firewall of China, James, have you come across Nothing is True and Everything is Possible? I have, yeah. I read it a number of years ago, so I, okay. I haven't, uh, I didn't have a super great. Anyways, but it just a, mm -hmm. a, a recommendation for the listeners out there. It's this fascinating view of how uh, the Russian uh, media landscape, it's written by this uh, British guy who was ethnically Russian and moved to Russia and kind of worked in the media news industry for, I think, like 10 years or something, and talking about sort of like truthiness in the Russian context and allowing uh, a little more speech than I think is necessarily permitted in China and more kind of like liberal activists, but they're all sort of like pawns and tied into the system. It's this fascinating kind of alternate reality of what the uh, Chinese media landscape could have looked like had, you know, I think there have been more power centers. I'm not sure why uh, why Russia evolved in a different way. I mean, obviously, like the Soviet Union fell um, and and, you know, there's there's some, uh, you know, the, the rise of autocracy is, is back in Russia. But um, it's a, it's a really interesting contrast between what you see in the Chinese media landscape and the and the Russian run. So recommend folks to um, uh, to, to check that one out. You know, one of the kind of just from a, you know, observing propaganda perspective, you know, one of the interesting things over the years has been 
China's struggle to make propaganda that anyone wants to, con- anyone, well, you know, I, I won't speak for everyone in China, but certainly that anyone outside of China wants to consume, that they've, they've really struggled with it compared yeah. to Russia puts out some pretty entertaining things. I, you know, I'd ra- much rather watch Russian state TV than watch Chinese state TV every day. Sure. Sure. Yeah, no, they, they, they definitely seem like a lot looser, a lot, you know, no, no holds barred. Anything goes funnier for sure. Um, you know, better with the better with the um, getting under foreigners skin, I think. Um, and, you know, the, the, the Russia today and propaganda influence in, you know, European politics in particular, but also to, to a certain extent in the U.S., I think has been much more successful than what China has been able to pull off over the past you know, 10, 10 years or so, for sure. What do you think you can chalk that up to? One of the things that the party has shown over and over again is is that it, it, it cannot give up control. You know, it gets really freaked out whenever there's kind of something that is, you know, outside of the party system and is outside of, you know, the direct control, of, you know, of a party official. You know, we've seen that with kind of, you know, the the, the resurgence of, of, you know, party committees inside business or, you know, with kind of even things like the the, the women's movement, which, which is arguably a very, very positive thing from a, you know, purely kind of objective Chinese societal perspective, conforms with a lot of, uh, you know, values that the, that the Communist Party claims to uphold. And, you know, Lee Ka-Chang talking about it, it this week. Yeah, sure. You know, it's that un- inability to, to, to kind of loosen, you know, to, to let go of something which, which then prevents people need space. You know, people need space to, to create interesting culture. And, you know, even if that culture is kind of promoting the party in the end, and, you know, or criticizing uh, opposing governments, people need a certain degree of um, freedom to do that. And, and, you know, they can't, you can't kind of, you know, you can't do that by committee, I would say. Yeah, I mean the best the best propagandists are the one that ha- are the ones that have some flair, and I don't think flair is a thing. You know, coming back to office space because that was a good callback <laughs> um, is something that um, is something that the you know Xinhua News and the People's Daily do all that well. So to end our discussion, I'd like to come back to the start of your book, the story of 2015 and what happened with GitHub. So could you tell us that story? Yeah. So at the time, uh, GitHub was kind of, you know, it, it was hosting a couple of projects. Uh, one of them was, was run by greatfire.org. And, and, and there was also a, a kind of mirrored version of the New York Times Chinese site, which was hosted on, on GitHub. And, and, and this was kind of a way you know, to get to, to kind of get around the great firewall and, and, you know, and also kind of provide an alternative way of getting in. And, you know, you had various apps that, that would help you subvert the firewall, which I hosted on GitHub. And then all of a sudden in, in, in 2015, there was GitHub went down, which is, is not really, a, it's not a thing that is supposed to happen because GitHub is a very, very important thing in terms of software development. And and it went down and it, and it stayed down for quite a long time. And they revealed kind of very little at the beginning. They just said, you know, we're being we're getting hit with a distributed denial of service attack, and then you know, as it stayed down and and as various other people tried to kind of assist, it just became clear just how big of an attack this was. And eventually, some um, technologists and, and you know experts in this field, you know, looked at this attack and were able to trace it back to the infrastructure which we know is is part of the Great Firewall, and that they nicknamed the attack the Great Cannon, and d- to describe it in a very, very simplified way, but it basically, it took a bunch of traffic, which was supposed to be going as it went across the firewall and just redirected it at GitHub. So a traditional distributed denial of service attack works by getting a bunch of kind of, you know, you've hacked a load of computers and you you, you point them at a server and you try and crash it. And China didn't even need to do the hacking because it has all of this traffic that it can control to begin with. And it just mm. pointed them all at GitHub and just hit them repeatedly. And, and you know, it, it was very, very effective in terms of uh, you know getting github down you know it arguably did not achieve its goal of kind of 
of removing this this thing because you know GitHub was very kind of clear about not wanting to delete this content, but it you know it certainly sent a message and and you know it, it did a lot of damage to to greatfire.org's servers and cost. They were lucky that I think in the end it didn't cost them the money it should have done because because their hosting providers were were generous, but you know it could have cost them a lot a lot of money. What I see that as and, what, and the reason I decided to focus on it, especially at the beginning of the book, is is that I see that as something of a turning point. You know, you talked at the beginning of the podcast about. Um, you know, this recent kind of trend of, of Chinese activists and, and, you know, even just Chinese people on Twitter suddenly disappearing and, you know, or shutting their accounts because they're getting pressure from China or from within the country, or they're just, you know, worried about seeing other people get pressure and that these spaces where speech or criticism is tolerated are growing ever smaller. And I, and I see the attack on GitHub as kind of a, a, a turning point of how we got there that, you know, in the past, the censors used to be much more uh, focused on what happened within China, and, and in recent years, they fixed the problem in China, as it were, and they've, you know, they've started paying much more attention to what's happening overseas. And you know, we saw that both with GitHub, with um, a lot of hacking, which has been tied to um, Chinese state actors, with this recent kind of purge almost of, of Chinese Twitter users, and then also with things like um, the pressure on airlines to stop referring to Taiwan as a country, or sure. you know, and other things like that. That this this Chinese-style political correctness, for lack of a better term, is, is spreading beyond the firewall. James, thanks for being a part of China Econ Talk. Thank you. China Econ Talk is edited by Jason MacRonald and Kaiser Guo and is a proud member of the Seneca Network from SUP China. For other great shows on China, check out the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, the New Voices Podcast, and of course, the Seneca Podcast, now in its ninth year. Until next week. Shut